I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We don't talk enough about being bored in the theatre. In fact, sometimes I wish that the critics would go when it was just unbelievably bored. <laughs> stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Hello, hello, and welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life, and life in the theatre. My name's Jonathan Cake, I'm an actor. I have the wonderful opportunity to talk to great theatre artists on this podcast, from my past, from my present, sometimes, and in some cases from my imaginary future. Most of the people I've interviewed on this podcast I know somehow, I've intersected with, I've worked with, or I've had some kind of link with. Not all of them, but my guest today is a figure from my deep past. In fact, we started out in the business at sort of exactly the same time and in the same place. It was 1992. It was the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-on-Avon in Warwickshire in the South Midlands of England. Shakespeare's birthplace, as of course you know. And I was just starting out as a young actor, totally callow and not very good. And Dominic Cook, my guest this week, was just starting out as a young assistant director. But you know, you know how you can sometimes tell that someone's just got it, just has what it takes, whatever that is. Dominic always had that sort of sense of calmness. There was a kind of calmness, quiet authority, that indefinable quality that makes you somehow trust someone and feel like you'll go wherever they lead you quite handy in a director. He was quite shy and quite reserved, but just that sense that he'd got you. Do you know what I mean? He was just like, it's okay, I'm in charge here. Really desperately impressive. Well, now look at him. He's an associate director of the National Theatre. He was artistic director of the Royal Court, uh, where he oversaw a golden age of new writing. He won an Olivier for directing Arthur Miller's The Crucible. His famous production of Follies at the National Theatre with Imelda Staunton was nominated for 10 Olivier's. He's a commander of the British Empire. A commander. Commander Dom of the British Empire. He directed the film of On Chesil Beach with Saoirse Ronan, The Courier with Benedict Cumberbatch, and as you'll hear, he is about to direct the biggest, the hottest show in, I don't know, living memory. You're going to have to tune in to hear what that is, though I think I already gave it away in last week's teaser. Anyway, it's huge. He's been working on it for six or seven years. Amazing. And he's a very lovely man, which isn't always easy when you've been that bloody successful. Does not always follow, let me tell you. Gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Mr. Cake and Mr. Cook to the stage, please. Cake and Cook, this is your beginner's Dominic, you're so lovely to do this. We're sitting in the uh, little office 
where we've had difficulty working the lighting. Uh, the magnificently transformed new Lyric Hammersmith. It's been so long since I've walked into this building. And it's amazing, beautiful. And you're doing a workshop here with I'm, puppet. I, yeah, I am. I'm, I am allowed to talk about it. I, I'm allowed to talk about the whole thing, actually, because it's sort of gone public. But, oh. um, yeah, we did, we did have to sign NDAs a while ago. I've been working for about six or seven years on the development of a Game of Thrones stage show. Have you? Yeah. Oh, and um, it sort of came to me, uh, they sort of did the rounds, the producers sort of came over from the States and interviewed a lot of um, British theatre people. And um, I, th- I sort of thought about it and I thought, oh, that's quite interesting because it's rooted in Shakespeare, actually. Mm. The first Game of Thrones book mm. is based on the histories. Is it? So I thought, well, there's a natural idiom for this material because I think you have to be careful as tempting as someone lucky enough to be approached occasionally about these sorts of things is you have to be very careful about the cynicism of some of these projects where you take a bit of big famous IP and then you turn it into a stage and you go well is there another reason for it being stage art than just making money Mm. because I think you have to if you put something into the idiom of theatre it has to you have to reveal something new about the material. Mm. And um, I just thought, oh, well, that could really work because it's rooted in these sort of, all the stuff we met doing Shakespeare, yeah. the sort of dynastic struggle, the political and the personal being rooted together, um, you know, powerful families and all the rest of it, and battles. And I thought, oh, that could really... The Shakespearean theatre and its sort of non-naturalist, its non-naturalistic poetic reality could yeah. work really well. And anyway, it's been a long journey. I've been over to meet with George R. R. Martin three times, which has been amazing. We've done two workshops on the script, and it's really sort of developing. I don't know when it will happen. I think it probably will happen. But it, the next stage now, having got a script together, was, well, how are we going to do it? How do you do jousting? Right. How do you do battles? I'm allergic to stage fights. I hate them. <laughs> do you really? I absolutely hate them. Because why? I have done them, because I never believed them. And if there's a moment I believe... I'm thinking about, oh, how, why did that work? Rather than ever fe- thinking, that feels like violence. And when you watch it on screen, I think it's partly because you can actually fake it and the sound adds so much. Yeah. You never question it. No. It can be really visceral, but it's very hard to get there. So I wanted to, one of the main things we're doing here is sort of going, you know, looking at, well, is there a way of doing battles? and combat in a way that sort of makes it more like what it feels rather than what it is from outside. So it's been really interesting. Hence the puppets. A lot of puppets. Right. It's been really, yeah, it's been really, really revealing. God, so, how exciting yeah, and yeah. interesting. I didn't yeah. realise I was going to get this scoop. Oh, yeah, well, it's sort of semi-scoop because we did announce we were doing it. Sort of and people ask me from time to time what's happened. It's been a slow genesis because George, who is a really magnificent man, released a bit of the story to us. And then we sort of needed a little bit more of the story to get an ending. And that mm. took a while to sort of free up. And then... It's famously glacial. Yeah, yeah. Works, right? Yeah. I mean, but he... And he doesn't understand theatre, but he's very drawn to it. Okay. And I think he's a, he's a, he's a, he, his great skill is writing episodic narrative. Mm. He started as a writer in television writing, writing episodes. Oh, did he? Yeah. I didn't know that. And so he's very... He's brilliant at generating narrative and keeping... The ball's in the air. And might have asked how it came to you? Well, I was basically auditioned along with about 20 other directors. That's a good audition, guys. <laughs> and because I went in in the sort of, well, here's my idea and if you want it, you can have it sort of thing. I wasn't sort of gunning to do it. Right. I just, But I could see a way of doing it. And I really like the producers. They're, they're not actually from sort of straight theatre. They're from circus and illusions. But they've done massive shows on Broadway and Vegas mm. and West End and 
um, and I really liked them. I thought they just had a really sort of goey, fresh outlook. And they, they were the ones that persuaded George to give them the rights, whereas many other producers had tried. Right. And yeah, and they just went, okay. <laughs> so, so, yeah, but it's, it's been, and the good thing, the other good thing about the evolutionist voice, but as I said, it's been a long haul, um, is that they get that it's about getting it right before we go into rehearsal. Right. Because when you're doing something monumental like this, you need to really work out, you don't need to plan it down to the last detail, but you sort of need to work out your language beforehand. You know, and that's what we're doing at the moment. I think there's probably another workshop, at least, and then maybe we'll go into production at some point. I mean, we'll see. Wow. Yeah. I'm so glad I asked about the puppets. <laughs> yeah. From from what sounded like something quite the innocent. Twee, maybe? No, no, I just sort of thought, I was sort of vaguely curious and thought I'd ask en passant. Right. And it turns out to be the biggest theatrical thing anybody's ever heard of ever. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. Yeah. But it's, it's no, it's been... It's, well, there's been lots of great things about it. Part, one of them being that I haven't done puppets on stage for about 15 years. And because of Warhorse and various other shows yeah. like that, there's now an industry yeah, but... and the skill, both in making and operating. It was like a cottage industry when I last did it. I mean, I brought people in and they were fantastic. But the whole thing was a much smaller group of people mm. doing things at Batsy Arts Centre. Mm. And now all these people, some of the people we're working with in the room on this have done two years in wars and their skill is unbelievable. And they do movies. You know, Some of them did Gravity. They were wow. being the astronauts sort of floating in space. And so they're really quite remarkable in what they can do. And it's exciting because... It's a sort of corner of what we do that's been really sort of opened up. Yeah. I have a theory, just before we move on, about stage violence. And it's a bit probably the same as you, in that I think primarily, I still think the theatre is a medium for language. Mm. And I think what happens is the theatre is amazing at evoking tension, what's said and what isn't said. And that sense of building up the pressure like you're pumping up a tyre, I think, as you say, when you're doing something that is intentionally not the real thing, you've really made us all in the room think the real thing is, is ambient, is in there with us. Violence is present. And I feel like you only pop the tyre when you start hitting people and doing that thing with That's your right. chest. That's right. Or, you know, whatever it is, it always feels like it cannot cap it's only less effective than the tease. Does that make sense? I think it's, I think it's a sort of level of realism that the theatre isn't yeah. very good at. Yeah. That's the problem. And as you say, we know. And of course, you've got to be safe. And da, 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 da. We did def- Actually, we did a show about... Uh, when I was at the Royal Court, we did a show about boxing. And the actors actually hit one another. Did they? <laughs> yes! Did they? There was a really great movement guy. It was Daniel Kaluuya's breakthrough role. He was yeah, absolutely was amazing. It was called Sucker Punch. And it was a brilliant yeah. production by Sasha Wares where she sort of transformed the cost, of, cost of the earth. It sort of cost a year's budget, but she transformed the main house into a boxing ring. Right. Um, and Daniel was sort of training, I'm honestly, for six months full time. And he wow. lost huge amounts of weight with a professional boxer. It was a really wonderful show. And they worked with, she was sort of felt the same way as I think we do about stage um, fights. And she worked with a really wonderful movement director. And they did hit, I mean, they weren't punching at full. And actually it sort of, 
it sort of had a roughness about it, yeah. which is, I mean, fortunately in life I haven't experienced too much vi- real violence. But whenever you do, if you're ever around and someone gets hit, or it's it such a powerful charge, yeah. isn't it? It's, yeah. As you say, it's sickening. Yeah. And it, 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 there's a messy, awful, animalistic quality yeah. to it, yeah. it. Even if it's just one punch or something in a tube station, what I've seen things, what, totally. growing up in London, there was a lot of that sort of stuff going on. And, you you know you you just can't get that on stage because no. you've got to be careful. So they rode the blows. They would yeah, punch they each other for real. They, but they did. Would obviously with the I don't guy. really know how they did it because uh, because they weren't hurt. And it raises the question, doesn't it? Whether we, I mean, it sounds like it was completely successful in that situation, but whether we really, as an audience, want to think we're seeing the real thing. I mean, we sort of do and we don't, don't we? There's this very strange duality about no, the theatre. Absolutely right about theatre. I think. I think you do both, and that's why the Shakespearean theatre is so interesting. I mean, the Globe, I have questions about it as an enterprise. But it is very interesting to go watch Shakespeare in daylight, because you never lose the fact that you're in a theatre. You never lose... There are other members of the audience, and I've seen a few shows in that work very well. There was a brilliant Twelfth Night there, which Mark Rylance did a sort of, I don't know, 20 years ago. It was really a magnificent production, and uh, you were totally in it. Where he played Olivia. Yeah. yeah. And yet you were never, you never suspended disbelief you always sort of or willing you were willingly suspending it rather sure. because you were aware of that sort of triangular relationship between audience space audience slash space actors and yourself and the actors in Shakespeare's you know that you can turn all sorts of bits into a size yeah. I did some work with John Barton when I went back to the RSC in the uh, to work with Michael Boyd hello I went back to the RSC to work to be work for Michael Boyd and I did uh, quite a few shows there and um John Barton was around a lot and he would come in and um, he was sort of amazing. And, you know, he said, well, you could just... Because no one knows what was the sides, what was said to the audience, what was said to the other characters. Right. But those two things coexist all the time in Shakespeare in a really comfortable yes. way, don't they? Yeah. You never... You just come on stage, you go, this is the Forest of Arden. And they, they didn't have anything. They didn't have any trees. Right. And you go, okay, I'm in the Forest of Arden. Yeah, so there's a sort of make willing make-believe, which I think is at the core of theatre, and it goes back to the Greeks, actually. But you made a brilliant point in, in my extensive research. You made a brilliant point in an interview where you said, actually, this business of the fourth wall, this, this division which can't be broken, is a relatively new invention. It's actually sort of up until the 19th century, there was a mingling of direct address and whatever was going on on stage that we observed that was a completely recognised convention. Audiences have no problem with both. And I love that sense of, you know, we still don't we in our sort of collective, or whatever it is, imagination or or sort of theatre-going psyche, carry that ability to be both in it and out of it at the same time. We want to willingly give it up, don't mm. we? We don't yeah. really want to have it forced. No, that's right. For us. And there's a, that's absolutely right. I mean, if you think about the great innovators of that time when we had what was described, someone once said to me, theatre was used to be in one room and then it became, it was in two rooms, the proscenium and the audience. And of course, at the time, if you think about the the world of sort of Ibsen specifically, where looking at a real family in a real room was such a radical idea. Right. You know, because what people like Ibsen were doing was was going, look under the surface, look at what's really going on within this reality. So it was a radical gesture. But then, of course, what happened was that a load of buildings were made mm. like that. And then we got into the age of screen very soon after that, where we got used to watching more credible versions of reality. Mm. And I think both of those things have impacted on, on, on the sort of way that theatre has evolved um, in an unhelpful way, actually. 
Mm. And I think a lot of theatre makers in this age are sort of scratching around trying to reclaim some of the territory you've just described, Mm. you know. The duality, which is always there. Mm. Even if you're watching Ibsen, you still know you're at the Theatre Royal or whatever, wherever it is. You never... You never leave that, and you can be incredibly moved, but you're always in both places. And it's liberating to remember that, I think. Um, even if you're doing a, a play that is naturalistic, which I have done many, I've done many plays that are seemingly naturalistic, I think you, you never, ever forget that it is an artifice. Well, this is very interesting, because this brings me on to what I sort of wanted to start off saying, which is that of all the major directors I can think of, you are the most determined to make us pay attention. Thank you. <laughs> as, an, as an audience. I mean, yeah. it's re- this seems to be, at least, at least, again, judging by my quite, I'm sure, insufficient reading or understanding, the sense that in the plays that you're drawn to and in the way you present them, there is a sense of urgently wanting people to pay attention, sometimes to a, a real warning but often, you know, just something that you feel that feels very, you feel very compelled. There's a compulsion behind the idea of even staging this thing in the first place in content and in form that is about we need to notice this. I think of, you know, your great collaboration with Carol Churchill, Wallace Shawn, Bruce Norris, even Medea that you did recently is, you know, we are all in your productions, members of that chorus in Medea going, please, please stop and think about this. Please pay attention to what's going on because a train is leaving the station and we need to attend to it. Now, do you think we need in the theatre... Are you worried about the quality of our attention or us paying attention in the theatre and in life? Oh, that's a very, really interesting question. I think I'm very easily bored, personally. Okay. <laughs> and I have a horror of being bored. I hate it. Right. So that's probably something to do with it. Oh. And I think we don't talk enough about being bored in the theatre. Oh, in fact, really sometimes good. I wish that the critics would go, well, it was just unbelievably boring. <laughs> I used to like Charlie Spencer. I had a lot of respect for him. I mean, he gave me some of the worst reviews I have ever had. But I felt like he was, as well as being quite an intelligent and sensitive man, I think he, he used to write for The Telegraph. Yeah. He, he actually, he could be very cruel. He could be very cruel. But I think he, was, he had a sort of visceral connection with what was going on. And if he liked something, there was just a sort of joy and enthusiasm, which mm. he would articulate. But mm. he was also not trying to say, oh, that was punishing. You know? <laughs> And, um, and I, I sort of find, I feel that we need to think more and own that, that it is very hard in theatre to get people's attention because, especially now actually, because of the way that we are exposed to information in the culture and time we live in. But generally speaking, it's much easier, isn't it, to get people's attention with a film. Yeah. I'm not going to talk about television because television has its own uh, sort of opportunities and challenges because it's in your home and you can leave the room. But I think there is a relationship between theatre and film in that it's a closed story in one place at one time. Yeah. And I find when I go to the cinema, even if I don't like the film, I'm seldom bored in the way that I can be in the theatre. Because right. the clo- it's just the camera. The camera takes you right up to someone. That's always interesting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, it takes you into worlds, and that's always interesting. So, I, But I do think it's very hard to get audiences to connect with what's going on on a stage, in a, especially in a big theatre. 
So it's so you, you're saying it's more of an artistic, or actually personal imperative. Maybe. It's more like I, this is what I want to watch. Yeah, I think there's a mix. I mean, I also do think I think we have a capacity as as a species to ignore what we don't want to see. So, for example, I've always felt, and I remember this. I don't know where this came from, but. When you look back, say, say, let's, let's say slavery as an example, things that were seen as normal, which were appalling yeah. by large numbers of people, there's never a period in history where that's not happening, right. I think. Sure. Now, you only need to go to the developing world and see the conditions that huge numbers of people on our planet are living in and to know that there is an emergency all the time. Right. <laughs> We're just choosing not to notice. Yeah. So how do you break through that? I'm not saying I've done many plays on that particular subject, but I sort of feel like there are well, a whole load of emergencies going on, which we really need to uh, deal with. I think I get frustrated with the times we live in because I feel like we're, we're applying that urgency to things that aren't as important as some of the bigger things. Maybe sounds a bit sort of tautologist, if that's the right word, but basically I think that there, you know, disparity in the world is so great yeah. and so it kills people all the time. There are so many people dying every day from disparity. Yeah. I sort of feel on a moral, in a moral sense, we just carry on, don't we? I mean, I, you know, we carry on with our lives in the West. We choose not to really, we could, we could fix that like that. We could fix poverty in the world like that if we chose to, as a species. I know that it's easier said than done, but and I sort of think there is something morally about that that I'm interested in, because I think, I suppose, the shadow of the Holocaust is a big thing in our, for our generation. It's only 20 years before we were born, mm. roughly, and that happened, and I've always been interested in that, how that happened. Um, so, yeah, so those, quite, those sort of moral questions about how we turn a blind eye to suffering and things that really need our attention all the time. There's a great line. You directed a Wally Shawn play called The Fever, mm. which actually, you know, I have to say, <laughs> there was a phrase, fever dream, was mm. in a review of one of your productions, and I thought that's actually a brilliant... Well, I mean, obviously, it's a brilliant evocation of what drama can do sometimes. It can take you into something that feels like life, but has this extraordinary distortion. But it also feels like something very particular to what you're drawn to. You know, that fever dream of good, you know, C.P. Fry's great play about a, a decent man's descent into acquiescing with Nazism, mm. even uh, ending up, you know, self-justifying why he got into this. And Medea feels like a... Mm. a fever dream those Churchill plays have that wonderful quality of ordinariness set a, set alongside these formal innovations which sort of blow your mind at the same time so make you feel like the ordinary is magnificently distorting well the ordinary is completely unordinary isn't it that's yeah, the right. thing the ordinary what we consider to be normal um, is actually at the cost of a whole lot of other things and I think drama is really good at positioning you in and out of that. I mean, a play like Medea, which of course you've done, is such a magnificently constructed play. I was in awe of it. I mean, the ver I did a sort of version of it, but I think the version I did, the script was a version. I think it sort of did drill into the car of the play and, you know, the shifting perspectives in that play are so brilliant because you understand mm. why the men are feeling that they, especially Jason actually, but all of them, yeah. have to do something about this woman. Sure. They have to do something. And yet you're drawn into her yeah. situation as an outsider and yeah. how she's been sort of radicalised in a way. Yeah. And I think that the moral, it activates the audience because there are these, these moral questions. And if you can deliver all sides of that argument in that play, you make the audience active and you stop them from being bored. Yeah. Because I think when the audience get bored is when they're passive. 
Yeah, that's really good. And that's that's maybe that's what I mean. Your your ability, the the things you're drawn to, and the way you present them, insists that the audience be active. Well, I try. I mean, I don't always succeed, but I think part of that as well is that I'm. You know, this is one of the things I learned a lot when we were working together at the RSC, and I was an assistant, and you were in your maybe second job, something like that. that. Second job. Um, I sort of. um, It was very interesting watching you know uh, these great plays every night, and you sort of go. You know, our job so so often is to really inhabit all the positions on the play, and I'm more drawn to that than I am to sort of very authored productions. Like say say in the German theatre, what you get is, and it, you know, you can the contemporary German theatre, you sort of look at it and you can admire the productions because they're sort of brilliant, full of ideas. But the problem is that the perspective I think often of the characters is sort of reduced because you're looking through the lens of an author right. all the time, right. and you're sort of that's just being constantly told to you. Right. This is what this play is about. Whereas I sort of like, I mean, it's not that I don't want a director to be thinking about a sort of world-container play because that is always interesting and exciting when it's done well. But I, but I think you know you want to hear all the perspectives you want the arguments to convince you i love arthur miller for that arthur miller is the great you know because you sort of listen to him and you go oh yeah you've got a point i'm with you yeah and then you go over to the other person you go yeah and actually that makes that gives you the problem i think it's political in a way because it hands a problem back to you rather than tells you what to think and i don't i don't think any of us want to be told what to think do we it's boring Um, no, well, I think it's also an absolute turn-off to participation. Yeah, it is. You feel, again, like you're not active. You're being... You're just consuming. Yeah. Um, we'll get back to this and get back to, you know, your collaborations with these extraordinary people and these sort of extraordinary provocateurs, particularly. Or provocateurs hmm. is not a good word. Certainly it's too small a word for what Carol Churchill is, for example. But She's partly that. She is partly that. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly the great innovator, I would say. Mm -hmm. No question. Um, Tell me, when did you, Dominic, first... Do you remember when you first went to a theatre? Well, funny enough, we were talking about it because there's a pantomime on here at the moment. So we used to go for a good few years to Richmond. I grew up in London. And my parents were separated, were divorced, and my dad lived sort of of West London. And we used to go to the Richmond Theatre pantomime. Did you? That wasn't quite because you grew up in Swiss Cottage, right? I sort of did. We moved around a lot. I ended right. up there because my parents went through basically several. My mum, my mum went through two divorces. It was all. Right. It was a very, very chaotic, crazy childhood, especially the first half of it. And she ended up fleeing her second husband and renting a flat in North London. And, and she got through a friend who was. She lived in that flat for the rest of her life. But it was sort of. It was pretty basic. She was sleeping in the living room. It was pretty. But anyway, I, I, that's where I ended up. But my, my, my dad lived in West London and would take us, we, we got taken every sort of Christmas Eve or right. something down to that. And we, I, remember, I do remember it quite well because in those days, that, that, that pantomime had the big stars yeah. of the time. Do you remember anyone? I do remember Arthur Askey. Arthur Askey. But those sort of people who were on Saturday night television, it was yes. probably Cilla Black and it was, sure. you know, it was, they were all sort of big stars and it was very old, but I do remember that. Roy and then Hunt, late, an emu. exactly, that sort of thing. Fantastic. Big production values. The, all the classic stuff, audience participations. So I went to that. And and you were you a family that went to the theatre quite a lot, apart from Pantos? Yeah, uh, my parents were both, in their own ways, theatre-going people. I mean, my mother had wanted to be an actress. And right. in fact, she was she was one of the bells of St Trinian's yes, she was I, I know it's, it's, I, I, I saw the thing she she, was, she went to drums oh, no, she, she wanted to drums well done you know your stuff yeah. she went she got a place at RADA but yeah. her grandfather my grandfather who was an immigrant 
not a, a bright person, but very much sort of keep your head down, don't right. break the rules. Right. Um, he he said, you're not going. Yeah. And I think she always had this immense frustration about that and eventually got into community theatre as an older woman. Did and she? That, yeah, and really, was she was quite good, actually. She could do it. But she was always interested in drama. And my stepmother, who was another very big figure in my life, because when my dad left my mum, he got married to a woman who became my stepmother. So she was in my life from a very early stage, yeah. and she was a big theatre-goer. So between those two, we went. And then at my school, my, this, my secondary school, which was an inner London comprehensive school, we got sort of free tickets a lot. So I went. Yeah. we went to see a lot of stuff there. It was the golden so, age right? yeah. of just... School trips. Yeah, we to... went. We saw some, and we went to the NT. We went to the Barbican. We went to uh, went to the RSC. We, we saw. I do remember a schools matinee of a really boring production of The Caretaker at the. Uh, <laughs> I must have been about fifteen, and uh, we we were at the Young Vic. I don't even. I don't remember who was in it. But how fascinating that instead of telling me about some, I don't know what great accidental death of an anarchist or something. Apropos of what you were saying about being bored easily, you remember a boring production. Oh, yeah, production. I do remember it. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, what, what were the productions that have made <laughs> no, a real so, impression on you? Well, I can tell you because I can remember. I mean, I went to see, my stepmother took me to see, um, dad took me to see Nicholas Nickleby. Oh, yeah. The first product, first version. RSC I was about production. 15 and it was absolutely stunning. With brilliant. Roger Rees playing It was amazing. Nicholas. I mean, I think what happened, my understanding, you know, sort of looking back is that there's a director called Mike Alfreds who started a company called Shared Experience and he was the great unsung innovator of British theatre mm-hmm. in that he was the first person to do that sort of story theatre. He's mm-hmm. a Stanislavski. He's still around now and I learned, I did some workshops with him early on in my sort of directing career and learned a hell of a lot from him. But he was the person that sort of innovated that idea of storytelling mm-hmm. with minimal resources, mm-hmm. a couple of boxes and a bunch of very talented actors. And Trevor sort of brought that into the mainstream. Right. And it's actually there in Les Mis, that idea. Oh, interesting. Yeah. See, it is, isn't it? And They're it was very... there in the Beggar's Opera that you did all those years ago. Yeah, yeah. It became, a, not a trope, because it's better than that, but a sort of style of theatre. Yeah. Um, and that I'd never seen anything like that. Yeah. And it was, it was sort of a bunch of amazing actors uh, with a brilliant script and, a, and, a, and just sort of, again, it was not realistic. It yeah. was, it was, it was, they, they spoke about themselves in the third person and it was magnificent. And that was the first time I'd ever, ever been in a theatre where there was a standing ovation. You get them all the time now, but in those days, I mean, I, I think that was the only time until about 10 years ago that I'd <laughs> ever experienced a standing ovation. Yeah, why is standing ovation so much more prevalent? I don't know. I think maybe we're more expressive. I don't know. Yeah, that's I'm an not interesting, sure. It's an interesting idea. But isn't it? you get them now practically every yeah, show. Yeah, and they used to be so hard to yeah. come by. <laughs> Coaxing people onto their feet that were just putting on their coats and getting into the last train. Do you remember that extraordinary story of, of Michael Gambon doing um, Galileo at the National Theatre? I don't know where I read this. Maybe Peter Hall's diaries. Dexter saying, well, you, you, you definitely, uh, you, you should get a standing ovation for this. And Gambon going, well, yeah, well, it would be good, wouldn't it? It would be great. And he went, no, I'm going to get you one. He said, here's what you do. You take your solo bow. You walk halfway back upstage, you turn around, you look surprised, you come back down, you bow again, everyone will stand up. Yeah, absolutely, I'll see it when I believe it. Believe it when I see it. He tried that, turned around, looked surprised, and immediately, as though pulled by sort of puppets, everybody stood up in the in the Olivier. It was just you know, that was the age of, you know, I'll manipulate yeah, 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 that, uh, yeah. an audience into standing up yeah. for you. I mean, they probably wouldn't have done it if he wasn't brilliant, but <laughs> but I know what you mean. And they did, I, there was a director who, I, 
of, of your who did a similar thing, which is that they'd stage sort of two company calls and then in the third one, the music would run out halfway through as if it was an accident. Or they came on, maybe it ran out in the second one and they came on for the third bow and everyone was told to look really surprised. Yeah. So that's just the one-off moment. It's never happened before. So intensely manipulative. So you, the great, you know, attention maker, the great, you know, in my formulation anyway, the person who's, who's making us see, have you felt like manipulation is part of that kind of directorial manipulation is a necessary part of how you go about your work? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I sort of think you can't make it the core of your work, but you can help what you're doing with technique. Let's call it that. Right, right, right. I was funny if I was thinking about this, I don't know why, yesterday, I can't remember why, I was thinking, oh, there's there several directors whose work I like, my sort of peers or older than me, who um, or younger than me, whose work I like, but who I never, ever feel moved watching their work. Mm. I mean, I can go and watch... I would gladly go and see some of their work. But actually, in Britain, I think, I think there, are, there are only a handful of people whose work I go and I ever cry when I'm watching. You know, not that I'm... Do, do you know you, or you feel it's, it's likely that you will, that these are directors who have the power to... Well, I just... And funnily enough, I've only just been thinking about this recently yeah. because I think there are directors who are very brilliant, but they tend to be sort of cerebral bit more cerebral and I think the reason I say that in relation to what you've talked about is that I sort of feel that you can't manipulate an audience I don't think in theatre really I don't think you can really manipulate an audience into feeling moved I think that something authentic has to happen in the writing and in the acting uh, for for that to occur I think the the artists have to sort of put themselves on the line somewhere in the process I just think that goes beyond thought that sort of impulse to be moved by something it goes beyond the sort of conscious thing of manipulation. Right. So I thought that's the bit of theatre that I, or a bit of storytelling, a bit of drama that I really love, because I think if you can feel that deeply for another human being on a stage, it something it awakens something that has huge potential, because it's really about empathy in the end, isn't it, for, a, for other people? And that's totally. the beginning of anything positive, I think. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally, it's, totally. If you weren't you, do you think you'd be one of those directors whose work moved you? Yes, probably, because I, I cry at my own work <laughs> no, when it works, when right. it works. I mean, I, I wish I was more moved, but I know I've done things like when I did The Normal Heart, I think that's one of the things I'm proudest of, because I just found it. I mean, I thought Ben Daniels in that show was, yeah. well, they were all magnificent. And I, I just remember being in the Olivier, which is such a hard space, and we did, it was in the round and everything, but the power, the, the sort of, the, the emotional power of the play and those performances, every time I saw it moved me, every time. Right. And there have been other shows I've done that have been like that, but I, I sort of long to be moved in the theatre. It's not the only reason for doing it. I've done many things that don't intend to do that. Yeah. But I do find that. I think something opens up. In the, in, the, in the audience and a potential for something is, is opened up that I find really... So I have been moved by my own work. <laughs> Do you find yourself then chasing that in your productions? Are you trying to achieve that state? I feel and a bit there... disappointed if I, haven't, if I haven't pushed the actors into something sort of some deep connection with the material. And I think that is the most important bit of being a director. 
Because I honestly think that a lot of the rest of it could be done without you being there, one way or another. <laughs> I mean, it can be, you know. Yeah. You know, but and there have been lots, I know, of experiments of actors doing, you know, actors' companies and all of that. But I think in the end, the the thing you can really do, including with a really great actor, is is sort of guy. I don't believe you. Is <laughs> sort of say yeah. actually, really, yeah. if you were in this situation, really? Yeah. Because I think it's really. This is not just true of theatre; it's true of all drama. I think it's really hard for actors. In extreme, in this sort of extreme situations, they're planning to really go, yeah. really go to the place. Yeah. Some actors find it easier than others. Women tend to find it easier, men, but not always, to really go into an absolute connection with um, with an emergency on a sort of very primal level, mm. and and that is where a director can really get an actor to go further than they would, and they have to be challenging. How? Well, you just have to be challenging. You have to be prepared to put yourself right. out of the room and not care about being liked. Right. And, but you can do it in a... You don't have to be... You know, the old school of directors were, I think, you know, tended to be quite cruel. I mean, there was a culture of cruelty, especially at, at someone like the Royal Court. They were just sadists yeah. to actors. And, you know, even when we were first starting, there were directors around who would just bully. Yeah. And I don't think that's what I'm talking about. But I do think you, I do think you have a responsibility in that room to challenge and to challenge people's ideas about reality sometimes. And um, as the outside eye, you're the only person who can really do that. And does it just come down to saying, uh, ultimately, variations on I don't quite believe you? Mm. Is, there, is there any other way to do it? I speak quite feelingly about this, because I remember I did Anthony, Anthony Cleopatra, at the RSC briefly, and then at the Public Theatre in New York. And my dad had just died. And I loved the play and the part beyond comprehension. I still do. And yet Oscar Eustace, who runs the public, would come to my dressing room quite frequently in New York and go, just let it go, go. I think he was basically saying go further. And honestly, Dom, I I didn't think I could have had any more fuel for going further. But I didn't know what that would have meant, Mm. how to... And maybe mm. it's simply a question of not being capable of it. But I would like to think that I sort of think you have to be. I, I sort of when I say it, I don't believe you. I sort of would. I would qualify that and be as specific as I could as to why. Right. Because I think you need to give people more than that. Yeah. Because otherwise, they're just going to be pushing, exactly. which I think is not helpful for no, an actor. And I think sometimes you don't want to say it because you don't. Confidence is so important, and people will. You know, people will sort of get there often later on sort of thing. But I think, uh, yeah, I think different versions of it. It's interesting you said different versions of that. I think that's right, because sometimes it's not about emotion. It will be about understanding uh, the sort of wider circumstances of the situation or understanding, for example, anger's a really interesting thing, isn't it, for an actor? Because anger's very accessible. It tends to be the most accessible emotion because the reason I think that is the case is because it makes you feel powerful. When you're angry, and that's attractive, you want to feel powerful. Vulnerability is harder because you don't feel powerful. And often, when you you know, I I really believe that when you you're sort of you're sort of creating um, a set of circumstances in a rehearsal room where an actor can stop having to think and just be there with the other actor listening and responding in the moment completely. And that's where you can get to something that's sort of beyond, you know, it's just about that present moment, absolutely about what's happening there and then. And I think an actor can then really allow themselves to be affected by what's happening. And then, again, something really powerful can can take place. But 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 when it comes to anger, I'm often saying, "Mm, 
that's the sort of easy version. But with the anger, there's something else, isn't there? Why are you angry? At by, why are you made angry by that? Often there's something underneath, isn't there? You're sort of pushing against a sort of pain or a loss that you don't want to be there. And you're sort of trying to bring that into the conversation rather than just having people sort of, I don't know, sort of snarling at one another, which is uninvolving. Totally. It's sort of uninvolving. But when, 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 when you're watching someone and their anger is sort of rooted in something more human, then I think, well, I say human, I suppose I mean more vulnerable. I think that it has much more, it's much more persuasive, it's much more powerful. A, a play like the, the Crucible, which I did, is very, you know, there's a lot of anger in that play, but it, a lot of the, it, when you root the anger in, in a sense of why this is, why the person feels the way they do, then something else can happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's very, very good. I sort of wish you'd been outside the dressing room. <laughs> no, it's yeah. really hard. I think you've got, again, you've got to be as help, you know, trying to help the actor get there, you know? Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, that's lights down on the first half of my chat with the fascinating Dominic Cook. Now look, please, please join me for Act Two. Dig into our discussion about getting the end of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom wrong. Strategies actors use to avoid being vulnerable. <laughs> yes, I think I know a few of those. Sophie Ocanedo, who's been Dominic's great friend and collaborator over decades now, oh my gosh. And giving her performance up to the gods, how we can just sort of resign ourselves to whatever happened that night, letting it go and moving on. Dominic's vulnerability as a director, he's fascinating about that and what directing costs him. Um, his collaboration with Carol Churchill, which is very, very long standing, his fears for free expression in young writers now. And how Carol was right in her play, Seven Jewish Children. Please join me for Act Two of my chat with Dominic Cook. You will not regret it. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here is stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.